What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey, it's the Tom Hartman Podcast brought to you by Cameron Hughes Wine. There's a little secret that most people don't know about the highest quality wineries in the United States and how they work. They'll say, you know, as they start their year, okay, we're going to bottle, say, 5,000 bottles of wine this year. And so they overproduce for that, produce enough for maybe 6,000 bottles of wine. But, you know, they've, they've sold 5,000, they're ready to get 5,000 out. And so that's basically all they do under their own label. And then when they're done, they've got casks of wine left over that haven't been bottled. Cameron Hughes contracts with some of the very best vineyards in America to take that essentially surplus wine. I mean, you know, it's the exact same wine you would buy in a bottle for 50, 60, 100. Uh, one of the Cameron Hughes wines I had last week, the retail price, if you knew who the brand was, was over $150 a bottle. Cameron Hughes buys that in bulk, bottles it, puts just a simple number. Here it is, lot 506 or lot 622, simple number on it. And you get some of the most spectacular wines at huge discounts off what you would normally pay. Cameron Hughes has been doing this since 2001, seeking out high-end wine from around the world and selling it online direct to his customers. This is not just American wines. Earning Cameron Hughes Wine the number one wine brand online. It's just extraordinary stuff. Uh, I recently sampled Lot 609. This is a Cabernet Sauvignon. It was insane. It was so good. It was bold. It was rich. It had the, the black fruit and red licorice and crushed red rock. All these, these extraordinary tastes, juicy and ripe on the palate. You got to check this out. Go to chwine.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. C-H as in Cameron Hughes. That's his name. He, the guy who started the company and runs it. I've talked with him. He's a great guy and he's doing amazing stuff. chwine.com slash T-H-O-M. Or text the word wine, W-I-N-E. Text the word wine to 511-511 and you'll get free shipping with your minimum three bottle order. So text wine to 511-511. Cameron Hughes Wine. Exceptional value. Extraordinary wine. Now enjoy the podcast. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Morning, everybody. This is the Tom Hartman Program. I'm Jefferson Smith sitting in. We learn together. We understand our truth, our values, and community, and I learn from you. Some other things we have just learned. The David Pecker, chief of the National Enquirer, a publication, and I suppose we can call it that, that published 
remarkably odd stories on their cover week after week in the run-up to Election Day, bashing Hillary Clinton for everything from gaining 103 pounds, that may have been a claim against Bill Clinton, to her health problems, to the emails, to whatever they could put on their front page, that David Pecker is working in coordination with and has been granted immunity by the Mueller investigation. Alan Weisselberg, the chief of the Trump Organization, longtime financial advisor, has also been granted immunity for his cooperation and provision of information to the Mueller investigation. It is feeling like this is the week when the worm is turning. I received a call from a friend of mine who had been deputy communications director for a governor who had gone through a resignation. And he called me and said, Jeff, it's happening. Because I've seen this before. And what triggered his change in view was the New York Times story sharing that a Republican consultant, not one of the MSNBC commentators, not one of the George Bush, the elder or the younger allies who are never fans of Donald Trump, who had been against him early on, but people who are still mainline conservative consultants. Now starting, just starting to say to their clients, you know, you probably need to speak out against the president's misconduct. Neil Cavuto of Fox News speaking out against Donald Trump's misconduct. The combination of those things starting to indicate that it might be happening. My call is for more than impeachment. And this started coming up yesterday. The thought that I gathered after several calls on the subject, when it wasn't what I brought up, y'all brought it up, and I was wrestling with it. Elected Democrats and vocal leaders, I would say progressive radio hosts, but there aren't enough of those, have been grappling with a moral, constitutional, legal, tactical, and strategic conundrum to make a public call for impeachment or not. I think this question is going to be louder just as we come after Labor Day, the traditional beginning of the election season. This is the day. This is the time when people take their vacations. This is the time when if you're a radio host, if you are a member of Congress, if you are a journalist, if you run a podcast, the most likely time you take your vacation. If you're a campaign worker, this is the most likely time you take your vacation. You come back at the end of August be ready for Labor Day weekend. If you're a Democrat, you go to the AFL-CIO picnic in your jurisdiction, and you begin the campaign season. You, of course, have been campaigning already, but it begins in earnest. It is the crunch time. It is the home stretch, if you will, for September and October, ending at the very beginning of November. Every Democratic candidate for Congress and many Republican candidates for Congress will be asking their view about whether or not the president should be impeached. And the question will be asked in different ways. Will you call for impeachment of the president? Will you support Nancy Pelosi if she pushes for impeachment of the president? Is it time to consider impeachment? I can come up with 17 other ways to ask roughly the same question. And every most of them have been being asked over the summer. It's been easier to dodge when you're on vacation in August, during the August recess. It is a conundrum. The case for no... The case for delaying or setting aside public demands for impeachment, the investigation isn't over. The facts aren't all gathered. Pence is no savior. Impeachment doesn't seem to poll that well. As a matter of principle, we shouldn't take it lightly or hastily or rush such a process. Connecting impeachment to elections seems opportunistic and motivates the Trump and Republican base. 
And it fits within the conservative narrative that all the libs want to do is redo the 2016 election. The case for yes. The case for making public calls for impeachment now. The president is historically unfit and dangerous. Mounting evidence suggests high crimes and misdemeanors. The fate of the republic may depend on changing national leadership. And many people want Trump impeached. Impeachment demands can build lists, as Tom Steyer can attest. And failing to call for impeachment can also seem opportunistic or cowardly or mealy-mouthed or false. After talking with you all yesterday, here is my suggested alternative. We have to call for more than impeachment. Impeachment may be necessary, but impeachment will not uproot oligarchy or white supremacy. Impeachment will not restore a stolen Supreme Court or ensure a woman's right to choose. Impeachment will not restore separated families or save 1,400 lives per year from gutted climate protections. Impeachment will not transform a media and a conservative movement that have facilitated all of the above. Impeachment will not reform criminal justice, address wealth disparities, give the rising generation or aging Americans affordable places to live. Impeachment won't save democracy. Impeachment will not resolve the corrupt elements within the administration, the Congress, and the connected apparatus. Impeachment won't even stop Putin or election hacking. We need more than impeachment. Impeachment may indeed be necessary and justified. All investigations should be undertaken with vigor. This is a deeply serious matter from which we cannot shrink or shy from. But impeachment is neither the ultimate objective nor the solution. A better country is the objective. Going after root and branch and solving real problems are solutions. Calling for more than impeachment has the added benefit of helping the advocate, the spokesperson, the radio host, the candidate, the person around their dinner table not sound like a mealy-mouthed appeaser or reduce the energy of the people who rightly demand change at the top. A historical example. The hardcore of the conservative movement got stronger after Richard Nixon fell. So much of the focus was on Nixon sucks that after he was removed, progressives and the media exhaled, and Ronald Reagan seemed refreshing. The underpinnings of the modern right continue to deepen their roots and extend their branches. The Koch brothers, the Virginia School, hat tip Nancy McLean, the Federalist Society weren't yet famous. Removal of the president fooled America into thinking a significant problem had been solved when, in fact, much of that problem was just beginning. We have to call for more than impeachment. The clarion call can be wider and deeper, root and branch. Not just personality and party, but the movement, the corrupt apparatus, along with the cruel, selfish, sexist, and racist ideology. Later in the show, there's some questions I want to deal with, and I would welcome calls, and we would welcome calls about. One is, again, the long term. How do we focus ourselves not only on the scandal of the moment, but on the movement over time. How also do we address another question that I want to wrestle with? And that is, I think in their mind, they were quibbling with something I said, which is worth doing, that we have to figure out, well, I guess the way he put it was Democrats have to figure out to win not only in coastal states, but in the states with smaller populations that still have two U.S. senators, which means they also have two bonus electoral votes. And one of the questions I want to ask is what are the ways that you think that those states can be won? And I made a little list of what I think could be done. Counter to what you might think. When there is, I believe, a fever that is going to rise 
in the next days and weeks. And that fever, that frenzy, is going to circle around Donald Trump, Donald Trump Confederates, the Trump family, Trump criminal activity. And I do believe you will start to see cracks in the red wall. A lot of analogy, a lot of comparison has been made to Richard Nixon and Watergate. It's been happening almost since inauguration, certainly since the Mueller investigation kicked up in earnest. And I want to ask you and I want to offer my own thoughts about what is different now. I think there's some powerful things that are different. I also think partly in relation to that and partly coincidentally, At the same instance, we have to treat it differently. And the clarion call has to be different. What's the big dig? What are the deep critiques and taboos? If we're looking long-term, if we have to build rhetorical architecture that is pro-democracy, what are the most important arguments that we need to make? And what are the deepest critiques that we have to be aware of? Either to make or to challenge. Those are some of the questions we want to ask today. Honored to be here. I'm Jefferson Smith. This is the Tom Hartman Program. I've been using the Muse EEG neurofeedback headband. I'm not sure that's exactly what they call it, but the website is choosemuse.com. It's a little headband you put on, um, just sets over your ears, sort of like a pair of glasses, only it goes across the forehead. And it actually reads your brain waves, your EEG, and feeds it back to you through a free app on your on your smartphone into your earphones, into your into your ears as the sounds of weather. And as your brain gets more agitated, the weather gets louder. And as your brain gets calmer and more peaceful and more meditative, the weather gets softer and the waves get softer. And you start hearing little birds when you're having really cool brainwave activity that's associated with the way that good meditators do it. It's a meditation instruction tool. And meditation is such an incredible thing. It, it you know, helps concentration, focus, lowers blood pressure. I've been using this for about four or five months now. And I have noticed in my daily writing, because I've, I've got a 10-book contract right now, and I'm writing so much every single day. I used to, I used to sit down to write and say, okay, I'm going to write for an hour. And half of that hour was spent with distractions. I'd think of this and think of that. And, oh, I need to check my email. Oh, i got to do that. And, and I would constantly distract myself and then eventually come back to it. Since I've started using the Muse, now when these distractions pop up, just like they do in my meditation, I've learned how to, just like in my meditation, say, oh, that's a distraction. I'll let go of that. I'll come back to that later. I'm going to get back to writing. And now, instead of getting 30 minutes worth of work done in an hour of sitting and writing, I'm getting 50 or 60 minutes of work done in an hour of sitting and writing. It's really extraordinary. You can learn all about it at choosemuse, M-U-S-E, choosemuse.com. And if you order using the code TOM, T-H-O-M, you get $30 off. So check it out. It's great. Choosemuse.com. Hi, it's the Tom Hartman Book Club with the Tom Hartman University. And today we're reading from Threshold, the progressive plan to pull America back from the brink. I'm reading from the preface. This is page XIII. The world right now is tottering atop three major thresholds, an environment that is so afire that it may soon no longer be able to support human life, an economic free market system that is almost entirely owned, run, and milked by a tiny fraction of 1% of us and has crashed and in many ways is burning around us, 
and an explosion of human flesh on the planet that has turned our species into a global petri dish just waiting for an effective agent to run amok. Four mistakes have brought us to this point, and the failure to recognize them at their deepest level will only push us faster toward total tipping points where we are thrown over the three thresholds and into disaster. All four of these mistakes are grounded in our culture, our way of thinking, our way of seeing the world, the stories we tell ourselves about who we are and why we're here. The first mistake is a belief that we're separate from nature. Our religions tell us that we were created by a supernatural being who is not part of this earth and not from this planet. He set us apart from all other life and many among us, perhaps even the majority of the six billion of us, roughly seven billion now, don't even believe that we are animals, but instead think we're a totally unique life form. The second mistake is a belief that an abstraction, an economic system, is divine and separate from us. This mythical so-called free market, so we believe, operates under its own divine rules and is entirely and eternally self-regulating. It is always right. The fact that worldwide it's more than 95% owned and run by fewer than 0.000001% of us, it's just the way things are, always were, and always will be. We are here to serve the economy, this belief goes. It's not here to serve us. The third mistake is a belief that men should run the world and that women are their property. While it may seem that women's rights are well advanced and society is nearly egalitarian in the developed world, the United States, Western Europe, and Australia combined are only about a quarter of the population of the world. In India, it's still a common rural practice for men to burn their wives to death simply because it's more convenient than divorce. In many Arab countries and across much of Africa and South America, it's not uncommon for women to be murdered by their families if they dishonor the family by not going along with an arranged marriage or not being a virgin at time of marriage. Even in the first world, women are routinely excluded from positions of power in the world's largest institutions, such as the Catholic Church. This is one of our biggest mistakes, not just because it's morally deficient or because it can be biologically challenged, but because its primary result is an explosion in population. The fourth mistake is a belief that the best way to influence people is through fear rather than through the power of love, compassion, or support. We stand baffled when Palestinians in Gaza vote for a political party that has a long history of terrorist activity, somehow completely overlooking the fact that that same group has been feeding people, building schools and hospitals, and providing old age and widow pensions to people in need. We think we can threaten and bomb people into liking us and behaving in ways consistent with our best interests while ignoring their own best interests. We have come to believe that we are not our brother's keeper, that we are separate from all other humanity on the planet, and in all that, we are mistaken. Civilizations have come and gone, and those long gone vanished mostly because they despoiled their commons, allowed small elites to control their economies and governments, and lived in ways that were unsustainable. Those who survive for centuries or millennia are the ones that learned how to protect their commons, engage in non-toxic commerce and governance, and organize their cultures and lifestyles in ways that could continue in the same place and the same way down through the ages. If we don't learn the lessons of the latter, we shall face the fate of the former. The book is Threshold, the progressive plan to pull America back from the brink. Hey everybody, I'm Jefferson Smith. When I say that I think the frenzy, when I think the worm is turning, when the frenzy is likely to begin, 
and that Republicans will have multiple strategies. We've already seen a couple. Donald Trump offered two yesterday. He offered two messages, and it seemed sort of obvious. It seemed like maybe he was even missing a step, that his moves were more obviously projected. My view is that Donald Trump has been ahead of the media for most of his administration in his communication, and that being minimized as a dum-dum has obfuscated the national understanding. It's a critique that didn't work by Charlie Chaplin on Hitler. It's a critique that didn't keep Ronald Reagan from serving a second term. It's a critique that didn't keep Dan Quayle from serving a second term or minimizing the chances of George W. Bush winning a second term. And I think that Donald Trump is a different, is an odd, might be mentally addled in some ways. I am not here to bury Caesar nor to praise him, but has communication gifts that should not be misunderstood. That the red wall has held it together. And another thing that's held together is that he has been able to feed his team with communication nuggets. The 92% of Republicans that continue to support him, he is not the head of the snake, with key arguments that they can make, that they can tweet out, that bots can tweet out, that Russian bots can tweet out. That Alex Jones can say, that Fox News can say, that Rush Limbaugh can say, that Sean Hannity can say, that members of Congress can say, even the political consultants can pick up, that Kellyanne Conway can say, that this apparatus, this array of weaponized communication can pick up on. Yesterday, he focused on, I'm going to say two things. It was actually two categories with a couple things in each. The first was when he tweeted... And I had a chance to talk to Bob Nay about that, and Bob's going to be calling again today. And I missed its significance. Sometimes I'm a little slow. And I didn't get its significance right away. And the significance that I – and when he tweeted, oh, if you impeach me, the stock market's going to go down. Everybody's going to be poor. And then later, he focused on two other things, the second category. One was Molly Tibbetts being murdered telegenic young woman tragically killed in Iowa. And second was the publicity of, the publication of, a false white supremacist story thread about hordes of white farmers being killed in South Africa. Why do I say bifurcated message? The first message is for his money base. Understand that the modern Republican movement, the modern Republican Party is built because it has funders and it has voters, and those are not the same thing. Lots of overlap, also some disagreement. The funders often put up with some of the stuff that doesn't feel as friendly in the country club. That is not to say that they are not part of white supremacy. That's not my argument. But they don't like maybe talking about it around the golf course as much as they might have 60 years ago. The other is the base that, well, isn't benefited that much by tax cuts for the rich. That eviscerating environmental protection so that their kids might also get asthma, eh, doesn't do them that much direct good. But if they think that that family of color down the street might be a little bit like South Africa or the white nationalist, white supremacist view of South Africa, well, maybe we can get them scared. So they'll be in cahoots with the country club guy. And 
Donald Trump communicated with both of them. So that will be one strategy. Say, hey, stick with me, rich folks. If you don't, the stock market will topple. Wait until later to topple the stock market. Get your gains. And when you topple the stock market, try to make sure a Democrat is in charge so you can blame it on them. We don't want what happened in 1929. We don't want to blame a Republican president on a nationally collapsed economy. We don't really want to ha- want what happened in 2007, where it's kind of hard to make the case. We still tried our best to make the case that Obama collapsed the economy that had been collapsed under George W. Bush. We really don't want it to be obvious. And it'd be nice if we could try to suggest that it was, it was, all, it was all the Democrats that did it. So wait, that's one message. Hey, funders, stick with me. The other message was, hey, don't pay attention to the massive corruption. Instead, look at South Africa. Look at a tragic murder. It is an exercise in distraction. But there's now going to be another move. There's now going to be another argument. And I, I predict is such a weak word. My hunch, no stronger word, is that after Labor Day, starting Monday even, there are going to be more Republicans Maybe not elect Republicans initially, but they'll start to be a few more Republicans who say, well, I support the Republican policies. I support Trump's tax cuts. I like what he's doing with the environment. I like what he's doing with helping an oligarchic media. I like what he's doing with restricting voting and tearing down democracy. That stuff's all good. But I wish he hadn't done bad stuff with a woman and cheated on his wife and pressured people and paid people off not to talk about it. And then they'll start their criticism a little bit more. And here's a new one. Spiro Agnew's lawyer. Trump should resign to save the skin of himself and family. Martin London wrote the advice piece in the Time magazine op-ed. Alan Weisselberg. Why is this a big deal? Now, I think, you know, if you've listened before when I have sat in, And even if you haven't, I think you know my take, which is some of this is not that complicated. Now, the financial tethers are complicated. The tax forms are undoubtedly complicated. The network and array of relationships are complicated. But the basic story is not complicated. You're a guy not driven primarily by morality or compassion, was born rich and wanted to get richer. His dad was a real estate investor, so he decided to be a real estate investor. And he started to collect money from folks. He started to raise money. And you could do that traditionally. You can go to a bank and do it. And one of the ways you make money as a real estate investor is with leverage. Donald Trump said he was the king of debt. He said, I love leverage. Back way before he was a politician. So I love leverage. All leverage means is taking, you, know, you buy something for $10 million, but only 25% of the money is yours. You put in $2.5 million. million comes from the bank. And then if you can get that property to be worth $12.5 million, you didn't gain 25% in your investment. You doubled your investment because 75% of that investment money was the bank's money. That's why he loved leverage. That's how people in real estate, one of the main ways they get rich is using the bank's money. That's why interest rates being low matters for the real estate market so much. That's why Donald Trump has been yelling at the Fed to keep interest rates low. Leverage works unless and until there's a downturn. Unless and until that property you bought for $10 million that went up to $12.5 million, all of a sudden is worth nine hundred, 
or 800 or 750, uh, uh-oh, 600, excuse me, not 600,000, but 6 million. And if it's worth $6 million, you are then in the hole. You haven't lost 40% of your investment. You've lost all of it plus more. That's why Donald Trump, when he's walking by with the, the story Ivanka Trump loves to tell, when Donald Trump was walking with her, I think in Manhattan, and points at a man experiencing houselessness and says, see that guy? That guy's richer than I am. That story is because of leverage turned upside down. That same story is pretty familiar to Americans now after the 2006-2008 economic crash as so many homes were underwater. But if you're not dealing with your home, but you're trying to be a billionaire, at least on some version of paper, if you're trying for Forbes to tell everybody that you're real rich, because then it's easier to go out to other real estate investors and get their money. Because the nice thing is you buy that $10 million and $7.5 million is a bank. What if you don't have to give two and a half of your own because you find other people to provide that two and a half also? And then you're really leveraged. What happens, maybe 1987, maybe the 1990s, maybe 2007, when the house of cards comes tumbling down, what do you do? Well, you can give up. Donald Trump doesn't like to give up, so you get money somewhere else. He gets money from mobsters. He gets money from shady characters. And to make the story shorter, because I think now the phones work, when the cards come tumbling down further, when they are built higher, when he has been doing it longer, and by the way, for people who think that he's some big, super rich guy, like basically the amount of money he has now if he had just put the money that he inherited from his dad in a stock index fund, he'd probably be about a rich or a little bit richer than he is right now. Mostly Donald Trump's wealth is the story of compound interest and hereditary wealth. Basically that simple. So who do you get money from when you don't need hundreds of thousands or a few millions, but you need 10 or hundreds of millions? Well, maybe oligarchs from another country. This story is not that complicated. Weisselberg's turn. Weisselberg today, the breaking news that may be the most important financial figure in Donald Trump's life, turning state's evidence. That to me tells me that a different house of cards is falling down, that now the red wall will have to start cracking, or at least the mania of distraction, the oddball stories, not just finding whatever death, finding whatever person of color may have done some bad thing. Not only will there be a cascade of ads trying to pretend that somehow congressional elections are about that. Not only will Donald Trump tweet about white nationalist conspiracies in South Africa. Not only will there be a cascade of distractions, but we will start to see, I think, I think we have to, people like Spiro Agnew's lawyer saying, oh, maybe we got to throw this guy over the side. Maybe we got to save ourselves. Carol, South Carolina. Yeah, hey, Jefferson Smith. I wish you had your own show. I love hearing you. Oh, so kind. Um, anyway, look, uh, House of Cards, yes, sure, but I like to compare it to a chess game. The pawns are going down real quick. Then we got, we're going to have the rooks and the knights, you know, the, the boys, the Trump boys, the Jared. The queen is Ivanka. You know, Ivanka just quit her clothing line and her China, you know, I mean, there was embarrassment because of her China ties and everything. But you don't hear too much about her, but she is now full-time staff with the, with Trump in the White House. And I think that, I don't know if you ever watched The Apprentice. I actually did watch that show. She, she, he listened to everything that she ever told him to do. She's, she's brainy. Uh, people might discredit her because she's blonde and beautiful, but I'll tell you, she is really cunning. And I think that she is going to be, she's doing damage control right now. And I think she is going to be the queen in this game. 
but you got to get through the queen to get the get to the king in a chess game, right? Oh, I like I like your analogy. I now understand. All right, yeah. Here would be my so I, so I agree that the, and the interesting thing about chess is it can also have cascading results, right? It starts out you don't know what's going to happen, and then once it starts happening, it can start happening pretty fast. The uh, the my quibble is that to me. The objective is not toppling Donald Trump. The objective is a better country. The objective is solving real problems and saving democracy, saving the middle class and saving the planet. And that toppling Donald Trump will not do that any more than saving than, than toppling Richard Nixon made it so that there wasn't a growth in the right wing movement in this country. So I, as you think about the chess game, and I haven't figured this all out, but as you think about the chess game, be thinking about who are the other queens, who are the other bishops, who are the rooks that aren't so obvious on the chessboard. The power of his pen, the executive order, is basically the only thing that he's good at. And he yeah. loves the pardon, too, because he can wave his beneficent hand and pardon people. The king, again. Thank you, Carl. I'm going to go to Jesse real quick before we go. I understand, and I don't okay. mean to minimize the importance of Donald Trump, but thank you so much for your call, Carl. Johnny, Lamarck, Texas, how you doing? Okay. Someone called in a few you know, a few minutes ago with a uh, rhetorical type of what-if question about the blue wave if it doesn't occur in November. Yep. And my answer is that it wouldn't really matter for the simple reason that Americans, even if Americans do turn out in great numbers to vote in November to correct this travesty against democracy, there are still unresolved problems of repo party gerrymandering of voting districts, yeah. repo party voter suppression tactics, such as shutting down voting districts where they don't like people who are democratic and liberal and progressive uh, likely voter voting to occur. Uh, we have unresolved issues with electronic computerized voting machines under the ownership and control of private Republican Party-friendly companies like Diebold. So the bottom line is, even if a lot of people show up, what the Republicans will do is they will understand that the Democrats have to win. But they will adjust the vote in such a way that the margin is not as great as it should be. So in other words, instead of having a 20-point or a 25-point lead, the, the Democrats will have a 3-point or 5-point lead. Thus, when, when they have an issue and in the future, six months or a year and a half down the road, they can always cry and complain, saying, oh, yeah, but you don't have a mandate. Look how close the vote was. That's what they've done, and that's what they will continue to do until we collect those above-mentioned uh, items. Johnny, as they said in the movie, almost kind of. Speak up, Johnny. Appreciate your call. Charlotte, in Ramona, California, how you doing? I just had a quick question. There's been some talk about Gorsuch and his, I guess it's his son, that something with Deutsche Bank and that whole thing. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm just wondering if either Gorsuch or if Kavanaugh gets in, People think that that's a done deal and nothing can change until they die or they resign or whatever, retire. But can't they be impeached if there's some corruption or something going on? Yes, a Supreme Court justice can be impeached. In fact, that's the only way to really remove a Supreme Court justice. The last Supreme Court justice I can remember being removed was what, Abe Fortas? The last one I can remember not being confirmed was, well, what am I talking about? Merrick Garland didn't get confirmed. Uh, but prior to that was Robert Bork. But in the case of Gorsuch, what I'm aware of is that it was Justice Kennedy's son who was Trump's lender, Trump's financier with Deutsche Bank, and that there were communications between the Trump administration and Justice Kennedy's office, presumably Justice Kennedy himself, yeah, uh, about Justice Kennedy's plans, and that even the speculation was 
that one of the things that made Kennedy more willing to step down was the agreement to have one of his uh, shortlist people, somebody like Kavanaugh, maybe Kavanaugh specifically, who had been a, uh, a clerk of his, that if he could hand his baton, his Article Three life-tenured, powerful, super democratic, and by that I mean above democracy baton, to someone who he viewed as the fruit of his loins, that he was more willing to step down at a time that ensured, or at least made significantly more likely, that that person would get confirmed. Now, if there were some coordination, some dirty pool, not only in relationship to timing and, okay, well, let's make sure we get this person in there, but in fact, facilitated by financial relationships, well, that could taint Deutsche Bank, that could taint Justice Kennedy, but it might be harder to taint Kavanaugh unless you could show that he was somehow not only the fruit of a poisonous tree, but in fact, in on the joke, part of the poisonous tree. You'd have to be able to show that he had committed high crimes and misdemeanors and not only benefited from them. That's one of the challenges. That's one of the reasons I say impeachment mm-hmm. isn't enough, because lots of people will benefit from high crimes and misdemeanors, and we've got to deal with that stuff. And a lot of people will be harmed by it. But that's my, that's my quick uh-huh. response. Jana, Southern Indiana, Jeff Sessions. Well, hello there. Hello. Um, my husband and I, I think we're the only Democrats here in this town. Uh-huh. <laughs> when we went to vote in 2016, we were put on a polling machine, a voting machine on the other side of the room, and some volunteer goes, oh, we have a couple Democrats here. And I thought, what, well, did they have pitchforks here or what? So oh, this time around, we're doing absentee voting. They sh- they vote shamed you? They made you go in the corner of the room and made people point and laugh? I do uh, wonder if they purged our votes, too. I do wonder that. Maybe it was more like voter protection. Maybe they viewed you as someone who had, like... Turned on the turned on the mob, and they wanted to make sure. That, hey, the couple of Democrats make sure that they don't get assaulted. Thank you so much for voting, and thank you so much for calling, Janet. We're gonna be right back on Tom Hartman Show. This is the Tom Hartman Show. I'm Jefferson Smith. Red wave, blue tide, blue wave, red wall, cracks, rats off the ship. What metaphor do you choose? Let's step aside from metaphors for a moment. Let's talk about news. Bob Nay joining us from Talk Media News, talkmedianews.com. Bob Nay, hello, sir. Hello, Jefferson. How are you? I, I, I promise that I, I suggest, I said, I guess I promise that I would be more honest about that uh, question today. I will be in the third hour. I will answer your okay. question by saying, doing just fine. What news okay. is breaking? And by that, I mean maybe breaking democracy. Well, the news of the day, of course, is Alan Weisselberg. He's been granted immunity. He, of course, is the uh, CEO with the uh, Trump <coughs> business, and um, he's the Trump Organization's CFO, as they call it, and he was granted immunity in the Cohen probe. And as we talked about yesterday on the show, the toughest angle for the president now, I, at least I, I think in an analyzing all of this the last few days is not the impeachment word. It's not Manafort, it's not Don McGahn, his uh, counsel for the White House, or the actual campaign finance violation itself. But the state of New York, the Trump business, found the foundation, his adult children running it, the management, uh, the attorney general of New York utilizing now the Cohen plea 
to open up an entirely you know brand new way. Of course, throw in the National Enquirer, uh, you know, CEO, and then you've got a, a fascinating, I think, scenario that's going to put all eyes upon New York State. And um, of course, if the business had not involved itself with the uh, Cohen issue and the hush money for the Trump campaign, then I think it would have been a, a standoff, frankly, as people, as you know, refer back to the John Edwards case in 2012 of paying the money. This is a brand new, Jefferson, a brand new light on everything. The Bloomberg uh, headline is immunity for the Trump CFO is a potential game changer. The uh, Oh, so many questions, Bob. So part of my challenge is that when you start talking about payoffs to porn actresses and the National Enquirer being in cahoots with the current president of the United States to propagandize and keeping a safe of his information, and now the CFO of his organization, so we will learn more maybe about his taxes, maybe about money laundering, maybe about ties to Russian oligarchs, our primary international adversary, it is... It boggles the mind so much it's hard to keep it all straight. It's one of the reasons why I look for a base note amidst the cacophonous trouble. One of the reasons why I want to say, okay, let's just save democracy and let's, you know, impact the stuff we can we can impact. But it also makes it hard to think about the next move, the next thing. What do you think is the uh, and that next thing might be Jeff Sessions? Okay, so I want to talk about that a little bit. But before I guess we get to that, anything else to give texture to who Weisselberg is and why his immunity deal could be a game changer? Well, he has served. This is the right here. What I'm about to say is the biggie. Weisselberg has served as executive vice president and CFO, chief financial officer of the Trump organization for decades, decades, you know, which is over three. He was an accountant to Donald Trump's dad, Fred. Right. And so he's closely oversaw all the real estate business dealings. He's handled personal financial matters for the president. He was uh, treasurer of the president's uh, troubled foundation. And so between this guy and Cohen, there is nothing unknown. Now, immediately today, people will say this has nothing to do with Russian collusion. Well, that may be accurate, but it has all to do with the fact of not campaign finance violation, but it has to do with, you know, with the fact of people within a business that served in a political capacity, one way or the other, I'm talking about the CFO, along with a lawyer, along with a candidate, which would be now President Trump, and if that all goes together... You don't have to look at the fact that it's not Russian-bound. Vladimir Putin wasn't in this, but it doesn't matter. It's out there, it exists, and it's going to be, I think, massive. The Jeff Sessions uh, deal, Lindsey Graham obviously is sending a message. Look, Lindsey Graham was the one that originally said, and he, you know, he's a big deal, as you know, over there for, for this issue, and he's the one that said to the Yeah, he, tripped and fl- he, he flipped in favor of Putin, but go ahead. Right, yeah, but, but I mean... Well, he's a big deal on Sessions. Yeah. And uh, so he's the one that originally said, you know, uh, Hades will freeze over before you get rid of Sessions when there was indicators they might get rid of him within the last year. Now, Graham all of a sudden is sending signals that, well, you know, yeah, we would have time for hearings for a new attorney general. What they're doing, I believe, and from contacts on the Hill that I've talked to in the last 24 hours, they were, the president was going to move to fire Sessions. 
Yeah. And this is Lindsey Graham's way of, of stopping this prior to hmm. the midterms, because it would, it would be uh, chaos. Yesterday, you said something important that I didn't pick up on quickly enough. I want to try to be a little quicker today. Mm-hmm. So the... Uh, the Lindsey Graham line that I saw was, yeah, we may, in fact, look at uh, changing the attorney general after the midterms. And I, my, you know, my jaundiced partisan eye watched that as an appeasement of the president, watched that as a, oh, look, even Lindsey Graham. What you just said is, well, maybe actually it's a pause button. Maybe instead of that happening immediately. And so what September and October is about is the the long knives of Donald Trump coming out for the entire Mueller investigation and Rod Rosenstein and everybody else that what you're saying, maybe it is, in fact, a pause button. Yes. Uh-huh. And, and, of course, this is self-preservation on, on the side of the Senate Republicans. They just want all of this to, you know, as much as humanly possible, stop right now. And then afterwards, there's going to be a flurry of, of you know, different things. And if Sessions fired, what's the president trying to do? Did he try to get Sessions to fire Mueller? Does somebody have inside information? I mean, this, we'll be talking about this for the next you know, couple of months. I think we'll be talking about this for the next two generations. True. Thank you so much, Bob Ney. Thank you. Thank you. You know, in the world of work, one of the most important things is one of the things that people probably think the least about until they have to sit in it, which is their chair. And the X chair is absolutely extraordinary. This is the new high-tech, in fact, they've got a brand new version. It's called the X3, the newest version of the X chair. It is comfortable, it is high-tech, and yes, I'll say it, it is sexy. This chair is extraordinary, and it will dramatically, consequentially improve your concentration and productivity because it's gonna help your posture. And you know, if you're not in pain and, you're, and your blood is working, you know, flowing well, your brain is gonna work well. The new X3 is quite simply the most modern, ergonomic, high-tech, comfortable office chair in the world, period. The X3's unique ATR fabric makes it feel like you're literally floating on air. And its patented split-back lumbar technology provides a cradling, customized feel that has to be experienced to believe. You need to see and feel the X3 for yourself. Go to xchairtom.com. That's xchairtom.com now to check out the X3's perfect blend of design and ergonomics. A lot of people, you know, checking these out and going for these chairs. Supplies are limited, so don't wait. Order at xchairtom.com. And if you do it now, you get $100 off. That's xchairtom.com. Or you can call them at 1-844-4X-CHAIR. This chair comes with a 30-day, no-questions-asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. That's how good it is. Go to xchairtom.com. Right now, use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, to get a free footrest. XChairTom.com. Now back to the podcast. You're listening to Tom Hartman. How do you stay calm amidst chaos? Here's from Kevin Daum. I don't know the guy. He just wrote this thing. Maintain the most important elements of your routine. Two, take a break. Three, slow down and breathe. Then identify and manage your stress points. Next, call for a timeout. Six, keep perspective. Seven, control what you can control. And eight, smile. It is that sixth and that seventh point that I want to focus upon this third hour. How do we make sure that this cacophony, that this crazy noise, that this dazzlement of absurdity, something that if it had been, and this is, and what I'm about to say is cliche at this point, if it had been written in a book, if it had made it a movie, if the primary critique would have been believability, 
how do we stay focused? How do we offer base notes? How do we take the long view? How do we engage in self-care? How do we slow down and breathe? How do we make sure that we save democracy? How do we keep perspective? And how do we control what we can control? Talking to Bob Nay, who made the case that maybe what Lindsey Graham was doing in saying that he would be open to evaluating a new attorney general was putting a pause button to make sure that Jeff Sessions weren't fired immediately. Maybe that's right. I hadn't thought of that immediately. Another more worrisome possibility is saying, okay, well, we'd only be without our attorney general for a couple months. If he fired him, don't worry. We'd be willing after the midterms to get a new one. So that makes me a little nervous. And he didn't say after installation of a new Congress. He didn't say after there was a new Senate installed. He said after the midterms. But again, how do we keep perspective? How do we stay focused? And how do we control what we can control? How do we be St. Francis of Assisi? The old game in the media, and still a big part of it, of being the bully pulpit, was to persuade. When I was clerking for the Ninth Circuit, and a guy who I went to law school with who was clerking with me uh, had paid his way through law school by being a three-day champion on Wheel of Fortune. Really smart guy. He's now a professor at University of Washington Law School. And he was a game show addict. He loved game shows. I was not. And it was the dawn of the modern game show to some degree. It was the beginning of Survivor, that TV show. It was the beginning of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And he was obsessed with Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And we would go to lunch. I forget which day. I think it was Thursday lunch. Did Survivor or was it Friday lunch? Whatever the night, before, whatever the night after those game shows were. I know they weren't called game shows then, but that's what they were. And he would debrief. I wouldn't have watched them. And he debriefed them for me. And I liked him enough that I enjoyed listening to him. And we would talk about the lifelines on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? You could phone a friend. You can ask an expert, you could narrow it down to two, or you could ask the audience. I may have said one of those twice. And he would tell me, he is the economic theorist as well as a law professor, and he would tell me what worked best. Both of us agreed that narrowing it down to two wasn't good enough because they'd probably just narrow it down to the two hard ones. Usually I'd be between the two of them anyway. And I assumed that the best lifeline that the best way to win on a really hard question, who wants to be a millionaire, was to phone a friend, was to ask an expert. Because I could figure out, okay, well, I get my 16 friends, each of whom is an expert on a different topic. If I got a sports question, I would go ask Dermot. If I got my math question, I would go ask Josh. If I got my science question, I'd go ask Katie. And and, and, whatever question came at me, I'd be ready. Turns out I was wrong. Turns out the best lifeline was ask the audience, that we are smarter together than we are apart, that that silly game show is a testament to democracy, unless somebody like the contestant says, I think it might be B. And if they do, it taints the sample. And all of a sudden, whatever the audience tells you is not very useful. What's been happening with the media in, I will use the word corrupting our democracy, is that you have had well-financed operations shouting, I think it might be B. And it has impacted how we answer the question that we are suited very often to answer collectively. But now, but now there is a new game. Now it isn't only media organizations saying, I think it might be B on giving us an answer to a question. It is changing the question entirely. It is removing Regis Philbin, changing TV studios, changing the game entirely and saying, look, South Africa farms, you have no way to evaluate this because you've probably never been to South Africa, but you should be paying attention to that rather than the corruption of American democracy. I'll use another pop culture reference. It is the movie Memento. Mild spoilers. 
is about a guy who loses his short-term memory. Every morning he wakes up and doesn't know where he is, who he is, or what's going on. He certainly doesn't remember what happened in the last couple of days. So he has had to tattoo himself with key things to remember. By the way, that too right now is getting corrupted if we use the analogy, is other people are trying to tattoo on our memory falsehoods. We have to make sure if we are in a world where we are losing our short-term memory, and how are we losing our short-term memory? Social media is helping. The fact that we have such a cascade of information, but that social scientists still remind us we can keep in our minds about seven things at once before we start losing track of a few of them. And I'll bet you have had an experience like me when somebody will bring up something that happened over the last two years in the national politics. You'll be like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. When Donald Trump insulted the Gold Star families, I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. When Donald Trump insulted the disabled reporter, oh, geez, I forgot about that. And I remember those and then I forget about other things. In this community, if we are more than entertainment, if we are more than the circus's element of bread and circus to distract us from the collapse of American democracy, what do we tattoo ourselves with? What is the long game? I said I was going to talk about the big dig, the deep critiques and tattoos. I'll pose it as a question. And I don't mean the big dig if Roman and built in the day would have hired their contractor construction project in Boston, Massachusetts some years ago. I mean the deep critiques. If the mind remembers the negative four times better than the positive, if it tattoos on our brain more, if we wake up each day and forget a lot of things, but remember some of those deep critiques. When the communist said capitalist pig, that deep critique helped as a short form and uniting critique that helped foment the communist movement. Then the deep dig, the big dig of communist became the rallying cry for the growing right wing in the 50s and helped lead to an overcorrection. They've tried to do the same thing with liberal and Democrat as a phrase to keep the red wall protecting the president and the corruption of the current ruling movement. Racist might be the most powerful big dig right now that could be used to disrupt white patriarchy. What am I missing? What are the big digs that we need to be aware of or even that might be useful? What are the deeper themes, the bass notes, the cacophonous treble? This is the Tom Hartman Show. Bart on KBCS in Bellevue, Washington. Two quick salient points relative to what you just mentioned. One, uh, all the Americans across the country from the East Coast to the West Coast of Hawaii, whether you're red, blue, purple, or green, you have to understand that Trump is playing us like a cello. He doesn't have any kind of uh, intellect. He's just in there. He's like redefining the, the slogan, he said, she said, he said, he said. That he said, he said is Trump himself. He doesn't know what the truth is anymore. He can't, he can't tell you what the truth is anymore because yeah. he doesn't know it because he doesn't know how to give it. That's one thing. Yeah, and I agree with you. It's not, it's not the primary way he evaluates how to answer a question or offer a thought. Well, how about this one? How about this one? Under the heading of separation of families, I think what he's done to the children and by extension their parents, yeah. people have to revisit that movie, The Judgment in Nuremberg, vis-a-vis what Trump is doing to these children and, like I said, the extension of their parents. And what do you think are the key lessons that should be drawn? Complicity of these people in power and how they destroyed people based on the fact that they thought they were better than these other people living in their own country. All right. Bart, thank you so much for your call. All right. I can't resist taking Jeff from X-Ray in Portland, Oregon. And on most days when I am not here, I am Jeff from X-Ray in Portland, Oregon. So go ahead. Hey, Jeff. It's a 
pleasure and a privilege. Thanks for taking my call. Likewise. Uh, you always do you always do a great job Thanks, um, in terms of continuity and keeping the intelligent conversation going while Tom's gone. So Appreciate it. Thanks for what thanks for what you're doing. And before I get to the main reason for calling, early in the week Tom referenced a really nice piece in the Washington Post about Jimmy Carter. And and let me ask you, Jefferson, if President Carter had been reelected and his energy plan had been enacted hmm. How many tens of trillions of dollars do you estimate we would have saved in terms of climate change, mitigation, public health costs, and the end of oil wars? Wow. That is an excellent, that is an excellent point and question. We had a chance actually to save the islands that might get flooded. We had a chance to reduce the wildfires that are happening right now. We had a chance to change the glacial melts that are impacting my view of Mount Hood. Not that my view of Mount Hood is anything other than a manifestation of deep privilege, but I'm also a witness to it. We had a chance to do it and we missed the chance. And maybe we missed the chance because we weren't paying attention. Maybe we missed the chance because there's some people who benefited significantly financially from us missing that chance. I'm really glad you asked that question. Jeff from X-Ray in Portland, Oregon. You're in good company. Mike from South Carolina, you're happy with the Trump presidency. What are your favorite parts? Uh, Well, you know, I really haven't seen much that I have. I'm not uh, pleased with, to tell you the truth. Okay. Uh, And I base this based on the uh, presidency that we had prior to uh, Mr. President uh, taking office. Well, let, let, uh, let's, we, let's not. Let's. We were, I know you didn't vote for Obama. Let's not talk about Obama. Sure. I want to. I want to understand the Trump part. I understand you don't like Obama. We don't need to litigate that. He's not the president. No, no I'm not. I'm not going to. But what do you I'm like about saying, Trump? We're moving forward. It's what we're doing. We're moving forward. Yeah. Uh, we're going to have to take our lumps and to move forward. Uh, but I've, along with that, the fact that I have heard so much negativity there coming into you, and I know you have no way of knowing what's going to happen from one one call to the next. Sure. I'm surprised at people uh, not seeing that there's positive steps in the right direction being made. What are your, what are your, name three of your favorite steps. Well, well you know, he's uh, uh, doing away with the uh, imports from the countries that uh, have brought us, uh, if I may use the word, cheap products. Yeah. We're going to have to take a little bit of a lump to get back to where everything is being made in the United States of America. But we know by far that this is the better products that we've had. But I do want to I did not vote for Donald Trump, to be clear, but I do want to understand how you're feeling now. What do you where do you get most of your news from? Uh, Well, I try to listen to all of it. I try to use a broad uh, spectrum of the news, uh, CNN, NBC, MSNBC, Fox. I give it all a fair shake. Uh, But but I I don't know how you feel. But uh, when you get, uh, I don't know whether you can find a happy medium in the news now. CNN is biased to the left. Whether you agree or disagree, I don't care. Uh, uh, MSNBC, they're about the same way. Uh, you get a pretty good idea uh, uh, through Fox, uh, some of the other news outlets. The independents, you get a good idea there. Uh, your major networks, uh, they have their own ideas about it. And uh, I form my ideas based on what I hear, what I read, what I see. 
How, how do you feel? There, there, there are a couple ones. I, I wrestle with it. I'm liking, I like Vox a lot. I like ProPublica a lot. Uh, the uh, And then I try to, and when I follow folks on Twitter, I try to follow smart people who help make curation choices for me, right? Who like read stuff and come in different, uh, from different forms. I do. I, I think the New York Times is the, is the best long form journalism uh, that is probably happening. I like the Washington Post. I will say baldly that I think Fox News is, is, doing deep damage. I mean, I think Rupert Murdoch, who is not, to be very clear, he's an American now, and I don't want to be a jingoist, but he did not build that organization to try to strengthen this country. He did it to strengthen his own wallets. And I don't think that that organization is doing any favors for the United States of America. Uh, the, but, but I do wonder about how are you feeling about wealth disparities? There are a few things that make it hard for me to be excited about this president beyond personal conduct, okay, that make it and, and get me pretty darn motivated about it, to be clear. Uh, one of them is wealth disparities and tax cuts for the rich and doing very little other than, you know, eroding the environment to try to benefit working people. Second, things like in, in the whole immigration arena, I'm wondering how you're feeling about that, particularly when it comes to like separating families. How are you feeling about that kind of stuff? And how are you fe- is, is climate change the kind of thing you're thinking, well, that's going to be something that is too hard to deal with or it's not real or I won't have to deal with it anyway because it's causes are going to happen later. Talk to me about some of those things because these are some of the things that are hard for me to set aside. I come from a family, my, both my parents are Democrats, but all of my extended family is Republicans. And, the, uh, and, and these are discussions that we have and sometimes we agree and often we don't. With some of those deeper things, how do you, how do you wrestle with them? How do you respond to them? Uh, which one you want me to try to tackle Go, Take climate change first. Well, you know, the, uh, I think the climate debacle that we have naturally is worldwide. China is one of the uh, main leaders of uh, polluting the atmosphere. Uh, I don't know what they're doing to try to help. What about us? What, we should, what should we be doing? Well, I agree. I think we need to step up to the plate, and I'll refer back to the coal. Start off with the coal. I'm retired from the railroad. We used to haul a lot of coal. The coal was stopped under the Obama administration. Uh, the coal is being reinstituted into the U.S. economy again, and I hope that it will be used and utilized to the best. I don't know about of any of the other pollution. you got Michigan up there with the water. They're polluting their water. What are they doing? Let's let them take care of their own. Well, I heard you on the coal, but I do got to respond to it. I, it's hard for me to stomach the idea that a greater use of coal is going to help us when it comes to climate change. Coal emissions are one of the bigger pollutant problems, yeah? Well, you got you got to give them a chance to correct the problem. We've been given a hundred years. Agree with you. Emissions are there, but you got to give them a chance to do that. Technology is there. Uh, if you can send a man to the moon, can't you do something? Yeah, you can do something. What you can do is use other energy sources that we've already figured out, rather than digging up dead dinosaurs and figuring out that's how we should. Oh come re- on, man! My God, you know the coal's in the ground. It was put there to use for energy. Uh-huh. You know that as well as I do. And everybody else, look at all the coal that was burned for years and years. It kept. I agree with you on the technology point, but I've got to say, I think that we use that innovation. I think we use that innovation you were talking about. I I totally agree. We use that innovation you were talking about not to figure out how we can dig more deeply, but figure out so we don't have to. Because if all we do, if you take all of the fossil fuels that are in the ground and put them in the air, there is nothing, no chance you can take. And if you can cite me a scientist says otherwise that's in the main of scientific analysis, I'll certainly read that person. There is no scientist I can find that says if you take all of the fossil fuels out of the ground and put them in the air, no matter how you do it, no matter how you call it clean or otherwise, there's no way to do that without enormous pollution and hastening climate change and burying islands in water. And that is not an exaggeration. 
Nobody said it was an exaggeration, but I say give them a chance to give it uh, to clean it up. All right, it can be cleaned up. Uh, All right, I, we we dis- we disagree on that one. Here's what I'm hoping we agree on. Get off. Ask me what else, I forgot. What else you asked me? Uh, we done wealth, dis- uh, wealth disparities. Are you thinking? Ahead. Are you are you a trickle down guy? Do you think that we give tax cuts to rich people that everybody else benefits? No, I don't think that works. I, I really okay. don't. I don't think that works at all. I sure don't. I'm not that way. And let me ask one other one. When we uh, when we think about democracy, when we think about closing down polling stations, we think about unlimited secret money, when we think about uh, drawing districts. How are your feelings about that? Uh, you know, I've never really encountered that on a personal basis. Yeah. I really can't address that problem. I really can't. Okay. So, so the reason I engage with it, and this is longer than I usually take a call, and Mike, I appreciate it. I'm going to have to move to another caller. We're about to have to go to commercial. But, right. uh, but I really, I really appreciate your call. There is a false choice, I think, that's happening in the United States. On one side, it's like the taste great, less filling arguments in the old Miller Lite ads. The taste great, less filling arguments. One side would yell taste great. The other side would yell less filling and the idea was, well, maybe those things are opposed. I think there's a lot we agree on. But we can't pretend that compromises on facts rather than on values is the only method. We've got to believe things strongly. I believe in saving the middle class, saving democracy, saving the planet. I think there's a lot we agree on. We've got to stay strong with our values and still build relationships. I appreciate you calling. Thank you to everybody for calling. Let's think about those deeper themes. Tom will be back. I will miss you. You've been very kind to You've me. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.